0: Hi and welcome to classical stuff you should know. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and I'm here with Tuma Tua, two, uh, two of my compatriots, Graham Donaldson. I am one of your compatriots, and Thomas Magby. I am the other compatriot, and we talk about classical stuff. Anything you can look at and say, "Whoa, that's classical." <laughs> that's pretty much what we do. They're like, oh, oh, that's a classical thing. It's fair. Then uh, that's uh, a fair. thing that we address. Yeah. I mean, with with some, you know, some boundaries. Nope, like, we're not. No we don't address nope. the classical. Beach Boys album, oh, although then, we should because there are some episode. really great ones. Mm-hmm. Come on. Uh, yeah.
1: Don't ruin my episodes.
0: Anyway, we all teach at a school down in Austin, Texas, and we like it, and we talk about books and stuff, and that's what we do. <laughs> it's true. And today, we are actually talking about birding, and the story mm. of one particular birder
1: mm.
0: who one day, while he was sitting outside, saw a very large bird fall from the sky mm-hmm. quickly, aggressively, and as he looked closer, he saw that the bird had a very... Torso looking human torso looking middle. Yes, it looked, it looked a lot like a person bird. Okay, and then he wrote a book,
2: correct? So, um, and it wasn't a bird, it was the devil, <laughs> devil no, bird. Today, we are looking at a book by oh man, I don't even know what to call him. I guess he's a philosopher, he's a theologian, a biblical interpreter. His name is René Girard. Um, he is, oh, recently retired in the early 2000s, Andrew B. Hammond, professor of language, literature, and civilization at Stanford University.
0: Oh, I've so, heard of them, yeah.
2: Uh, he taught at Stanford for a long time, um, and he wrote in French. Um, at de- He also taught in English. But uh, this book was originally published in French, hmm. but uh, translated, and okay. it is called, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Quite a title. He is known for having rock and roll titles to his books. So he's got I See Fate, Satan Fall Like Lightning, um, obviously making reference to the Gospel of Luke. Um, and he's got another book called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Mm. So, dude's got some like. He's some got title pretty, chops. He's got some title chops for sure. Um, and we're really only going to talk about like the first chapter of I See Satan Fall Like Lighten, Lightning. Um, because I think that what he's doing is, uh, well, we'll get to what I think he's doing and, um, and we'll see if we want to take that conversation in that direction. But so Rene Girard, he writes a book and, um, he is writing about, he, his launching off point is talking about the Decalogue. He's talking about the 10 commandments and he is sort of has in his, the back of his mind, what is that thing that makes human beings different from the animals? So when we—so uh, classically speaking, when we look at sort of the, the biblical idea of man, um, when God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates angels, which are spiritual beings, and he creates animals, which are, in, which are carne beings, they're living meat. You know, they're, they're and, right. um, and then there's man— and man is this body soul composite. This is this is sort of the classical understanding of the human person. The Christian understanding of the human person is that you are a body, so you are an animal, and you are a soul. You are a spirit, and you are together, and you are made in God's image. And this sort of body soul composite. And so Rene Girard is looking at the Ten Commandments, and he's and he's doing this sort of interpretation of the Bible to ask this question of like, what, what is this faculty that is, that is this differentiation? So he starts off his book, this chapter. I thought it'd be industry. Like the, the ability to do stuff?
0: No, like we have an, in, we have industry. We have
2: factories. <laughs> Yo, I see. Like, like, like shoe factories? Yeah. Animals don't have I mean, that. Products. That's
0: true. I yeah. mean, bees make honey, but. That's, you know, Not to sell. That. But they can't bottle it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, <laughs> <that doesn't laughs> they don't bottle. Yeah. They don't, like, send it to other hives because they it's have true. better honey. That's right.
2: Um, the factories may actually end up being, like, a derivative of what it is. Really?
0: Did I nail it? Nah, kind of. Organization? No. no the, are we, we get, just better at killing another... Like, we're at the top. We won. That's why we are different.
2: So, well... Do you want me to spoil it or do you want me to build up to it? Well, build up. Right? Okay. So he looks at the uh, commandment You're six, gonna spoil, he looks at Yeah. commandment six, seven, eight, and 9. This is where he starts. So the, the commandment of you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And he's got this like interesting passage that he spends a lot of time talking about like the, the order of that, like kill being first. And then you sort of got this like de-escalation hmm. of, you know, kill and then adultery and then steal and then lying. Hmm. Um, and then the last 10th commandment is, <laughs> I wonder if that, <laughs> hmm.
0: I just wonder if that was for memorization purposes. God's like, look, if they start memorizing, they might only remember the first five. I got to hit the biggies in the first five. Well, and then
2: he actually kind of makes that point. Um, um, he, he makes the point that like. That when you get to the end of the list, well, then the, the last commandment is you shall not covet the house of your neighbor. You shall not covet the wife of your neighbor, nor his male or female slave, nor his ox or his ass, nor anything that belongs to him. And so he sort of makes that, I don't know if he's, re- if he's being serious when he says bit, says this, but he kind of makes a joke that it's like, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery. And then he's just like, just everything. Just all this stuff. <laughs> just don't do this stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And then he's like, throw everything in there. But he, know, his big uh, sort of light bulb moment was that he looked at the the word that we translate as covet, okay. and we, and he says, sort of in the translation of covet, we tend to translate that and add a bunch of meaning to covet, that it is this inordinate desire, it is this exorbitant desire, or this, it is this inappropriate desire. But he says, the definition in the Hebrew of, is not some sort of covet of an inordinate desire. It's just the word desire. Mm. So he says that— any amount of desire, not just So be
0: be content, essentially.
2: Um, He says, without being actually wrong, the modern translations lead readers down a false trail. The verb covet suggests that an uncommon desire is prohibited, a perverse desire reserved for hardened sinners. (laughs) But the Hebrew term translates as covet means just simply desire. Mm. It's the same word that Eve had when she looked at the fruit. Um, um it is just desire as such. And so um uh his argument ends up being that um um about this desire, so he says, um let's see, where is it? We must pose some questions about the implication of desire as it is defined in the tenth commandment, the desire for the neighbor's goods. If this desire is the most common of all What would happen if it were permitted rather than forbidden? There would be perpetual war in the midst of all human groups, subgroups, and families. The door would be wide open to the famous nightmare of Thomas Hobbes, the war of all against all. Wow. And so he ends up coming up uh, with, he posits that this desire for the goods of your neighbor is that differentiation between man and the animals. And that sounds like a super bummer, but right. it's actually a good thing. Um, and so this desire that you see what your neighbor has and you want it, he calls it, um, the, the the term he gives for it is mimetic desire. Um, that you are... Um, basically borrowing your desires from the fact that somebody else has it.
0: So this is a, you're saying this is an exclusively human faculty? We are the only ones who do this?
2: Um, We are the only ones that do this and amplify it to the place of scandal. But we'll get to that in a second. Because
0: don't,
1: like, animals take things from each
2: other. Animals take things from each other. Squirrels steal other, nuts from squirrels all the time. So, okay, maybe we'll get to that point. So the difference between animals and human beings is that the squirrel has the desire for the object. And the human person doesn't have the desire simply for that object, but that they have the desire in general for something that somebody else has. So um, the squirrel wants the nut, and when he has the nut, the squirrel is satisfied. And the squirrel doesn't have the desire for anything beyond the nut. Like, when the squirrel gets the nut, he is a content squirrel. But, but we tr- are not But content. when the man gets—like, let's say that you were walking on an airplane and you passed by somebody who was sitting in first class, and you really wanted that seat, and you're going back and sitting in coach. Um, if you um, if you get that seat in first class, and so someone's like, oh, there's a seat opening up, and for whatever reason, you get it. And you go to the front, and you end up sitting next to that man who's also in first class— um, there's something where you're still kind of hoping that he now has to go back and sit and coach. He says that's sort of the difference between he doesn't give that example. Um, but the 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 difference
0: so the difference between man and animals that were jerk holes? Yeah. No, essentially <laughs> Or that were angsty, like angsty jerk holes is what makes us human? Yeah. Um that's horrible. <laughs> It's not horrible because okay. he says this is the only, <laughs> no, no, he,
2: no, it is horrible because okay, it, it can go it to such lows, yes. but without it, we don't have human we don't have the ability to be, um, to human? partake in, in, in the glory of, of being like God. Uh, this is what he gets. So through.
0: can
1: you make that connection?
0: I'll or get will there. we get there? Um, okay. Yeah. Trying to grok it.
2: Well, you don't have all the information yet. True.
0: Um and stop testing me on it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway. Um, so, um what what? That's the sound of the pudding. So he says that, okay, so um he says the genius of the of the decalogue in the old testament is that it is putting a prohibition on desire. Um it basically says that when the law of the old testament looks at the problems of human community. And says, where does, do human communities go wrong? So in other words, the only reason we're making laws is to try to create a peaceful world. Right. Um, and he says, it's only the modern man who thinks that uh, a peaceful world can come about without prohibitions, <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, he, he has a lot to say about the riots of 1968 in France uh, and the spray painting on the wall where the guy said, uh, where does he say? Il est interdit d'interdire, which translates to it is forbidden to forbid, Mm. which was like the famous cry of the uh, socialist rebellion, uh, the student rebellion in 1968 in France. Um, But anyway, Uh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. He says, so when the ancient world looked at the problems of violence in society and they were trying to curb violence in society, they realized that they needed to not just put a curb on actions, but they needed to put a curb on desire. So he says this, if individuals are naturally inclined to desire what their neighbor possesses, or to desire what their neighbors even, or to desire what their neighbors even simply desire, this means that rivalry exists at the very heart of human social relations. This rivalry, if not thwarted, would permanently endanger the harmony and even the survival of all human communities. Um, rivalistic desire are all the more overwhelming since they reinforce one another. The principle of reciprocal escalation and one-upmanship governs this type of conflict. Many, and this jump down the commandment that prohibits desiring the goods of one's neighbor attempts to resolve the number 1 problem of every human community internal violence. Hmm. And so what he so he's starting off by pointing out the problem and he he'll, he'll get to a point why that this mechanism of desiring what other people have or or borrowing or so you look at Magby and you say I think Magby— Magby seems to be the kind of person that wants this kind of thing. Should I be that kind of person that wants this kind of thing? I should be that kind of person. Um, He eventually says that this um, is—that mechanism is actually the basis of learning and culture. So the squirrel just wants nuts, but a baby does not learn how to speak. A baby doesn't want to learn language for language. He doesn't want to know language so that he can um, have language. So the squirrel wants the nut because he wants to eat the nut, but a baby doesn't want to learn to speak so that a baby can speak. The baby wants to learn to speak so that it can participate in like life with other speaking people. So um, uh, it, it um, if it if it just had the animal instinct of wanting, it's sort of. Daily sustenance
0: language wouldn't be necessary. language
2: wouldn't be language sort of wouldn't be necessary um so it
0: You're saying if the baby just wants a sustenance language isn't necessary
2: yes so the, the disagree the, explain uh,
0: the reason the baby talks is to tell you what he wants directly I need I need to be changed I need food I am tired like that's the reason babies learn in the first place is to communicate specific direct needs about objects, not because they're like I want what you desire. It's like I have poop in my no, shorts. No, no.
2: He's saying that a parent who takes care of its ch- of the child, and who can who finds out that there's poop in the shorts, that baby is still going to desire to know language, not just because of its daily needs, but is going to desire to know language because it like think about little kids. Little kids want to be like older kids.
0: Yeah, I, I still think I still right. think maybe it's just that babies throw a, a wrench into this because I don't think babies have any idea what they want. They have very basic, primitive needs, and then I think language learning language with them is incidental. It's where their brain is at. It's because it's used around them all the time and because it's repeated to them. I don't think there's any desire there. Maybe. I think it's I think it's an incidental accident of babies being near language.
1: When you say gram language, are you talking about so like babies cry for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. but Does that count as language? Because in some sense, my son doesn't need to learn words because, based on when he cries, we know what he needs. Like, is that the yeah? Well,
2: maybe I'll skip over to the section where he talks about how that this this mimetic desire that creates such human conflict is not in itself an inherently bad thing, which is what it seems to be. Yes, because it because it creates such violence. So he spends a lot of time talking about like. Um, that this mimetic desire is when you desire what somebody else has and that person is now your rival and that rival, you and that person end up um, sort of having this feedback loop on each other where they have this sort of, they realize that you desire this thing and they have this sick version of wanting to sort of show off what they have and then you get it and then wanting one up and then it sort of builds and builds and builds and builds. And he says this, that, that this is kind of a function of human society, that you've got this escalation of desire that plays off your rival. Um, and he says, and that is differentiating for us from animals. But, but he's, his point is that it is not a wholly bad thing. So let me get to that section where he talks about how it's not a wholly bad thing and see if, if we still agree. Um, so let's see. Even if this mimetic nature of human desire is responsible for most of the violent acts that distress us, we should not co- con- we should not conclude that mimetic desire is bad in itself. If our desires were not mimetic, as in we do we are not located we are not copying other people. Right. Um, they would be forever fixed on predetermined objects like the nut. They would be a particular form of instinct human beings could no more change their desires than cows, their appetite for grass without mimetic desire. There would be neither freedom nor humanity. Mimetic desire is intrinsically good. Um, so he's saying that like cows cannot change their desires. So a cow only wants grass, only wants grass, but the human being is a creature that at its core has a almost like an unnamed desire that just sort of radiates out. I think eventually, it's been a long time since I've read the whole book and I was just reading this first chapter for this podcast. I think eventually he does make the argument that this desire, this sort of like, the desire for the unnamed thing or the or the the sort of, the desire that sort of, that lurches forward into the world to try to find the object of its desire latches on to these things that are lesser mm. and make us miserable and in reality what we want is is god um and jesus comes in and he's going to show us the model of how to actually live with it as a man you know as god and man he's going to show us how we should act the relationship we should actually have with this uh, mimetic desire um but left to our own devices this sort of beating heart of desire um latches on to the goods the perceived goods that other people have and um and other people end up becoming our rivals, and um, or people are rivals. See us what we have, and we end up having this sort of self-reinforcing thing, of of sort of one-upping each other. But animals want specific, concrete things, and when they have them, their their, their desire is purely only instinct. But human beings have a desire, have um, a a faculty of desire that can change and desire different objects. Um, and when they get the objects, realize that it's not actually the object itself that satisfies it. Unlike the cow. When, the, when they get the grass, the cow is a, is a happy cow. Does that make sense, Hanneberg? I'm arguing with it in my brain. I have beefs. Um, let's see if we can talk about the baby. Did you get to the baby? Um, I mean, that's what I was waiting for. Humankind is that <laughs> creature who lost a part of its animal instinct in order to gain access to desire, as it is called. And so that's the differentiation. Once their natural needs are satisfied, humans desire intensely, but they don't know exactly what they desire, for for no instinct guides them. We do not each have our own desire, one really our own. The essence of desire is to have no essential goal. Truly to desire, we must have recourse to people about us. We must borrow their desires. So he's painting a picture of what human beings are. Give a man shelter, food, clothing, everything that he needs for bodily comfort, and he still has a hunger inside him for something. Right. And he doesn't know what is going to fill that hunger for something. And so he looks around the world around him, and he sees what other people have, and he begins to desire what those people have. When he begins to do that and others begin to do that with him, it becomes this sort of nasty self-reinforcing thing where you sort of one-up each other. But it's not um, only
1: nasty, right? Doesn't he say there's a good part to this also? Um,
2: uh, hmm. The good part to this also is to have your desire is to, well, the good part of this is to do, i sorry, he says, um, where is it?
1: It sounds like there's like a reinforcing cycle to it of I want something and I get it. Someone else wants it. So then they get it and then outdo me and then we ratchet up every time.
2: Yeah, um, he says that this commandment to not desire the goods of your neighbor lays the groundwork for what Christ says. Yeah, this 10th commandment signals a revolution and prepares the way for it. The revolution comes to fruition in the New Testament. Um, uh, when Jesus invites us to imitate in his own desire the spirit that directs him towards the goal on which his intention is fixed, to resemble God the Father as much as possible. His goal is to become the perfect image of God. And so that's what, the, that's what our innate desire that we are made, that we are built with, is to, is to be. Is that, like, we have the desire to be like God, but we take that desire and we confuse it with lesser desires. And when we do that, it creates this kind of violence that is different than the kind of violence you see in the animal world of just of sustenance grabbing. Um, it is this, it is this violence that takes sort of pleasure in. So it's the pleasure of not just getting the first class seat, but bumping somebody to coach. Right. Um, that's, that's the, um, the sort of this, this um, mimetic violence uh, that, re- that he says is sort of um, part of the human person, right, right. but it's kind of like, you have to risk the mimetic violence in order to have the creature who can y- hunger after God. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. I, I'm having trouble with it being tied to like the part of humanity. So we're saying humanity is defined by a, uh, an evil, but maybe I'm. No,
2: humanity is defined by a capacity. I think humanity is defined by a capacity for desire. Yeah. I'm, or a, in other words, you could say it's a, it's a spiritual thing. The angels hunger after God, but they see him face to face and can go and, and can, like, commune with the Father and can be with him. I see Satan fall like lightning is when Satan changes, you know, uh, uh, takes his, his desire for God and turns it onto himself or turns it onto something different um, and then falls. Human beings have the same capacity that angels do to desire God, but... We don't see God face to face and we end up like using that capacity for for other things. So this is Lewis. you know, Lewis talks about this with we were built for a life at the seashore and we play around in mud puddles. God finds
0: our desires not too not too strong, but too weak. Yes. I, I'm familiar. I still take issue.
2: Um is this the AJ yep. gets to take issue yep. portion let's, of the podcast? Yeah, uh, let's let's get you out your magazine rack. <laughs> AJ's got issues. <laughs>
0: That's good. So I, I have two mm-hmm. two issues. Perhaps you can explain them to me. So, my first issue is that we are not we're not giving due credit to animals. Anyone that's ever owned pets has seen competitive. I want this other animal to not have what he has, even if I don't want it that bad. That is certainly in animals. And if you
2: think, and how the
0: me, heck? And also, how the heck do we know? And like well, when you are, ask them, they don't say. Yeah, exactly. There there are fights within uh, wolf communities for power. Right, because they want sex, right? Or they want to to have one over on the other animals, or like they there there are fights for territory, there are fights for yep. there are social
2: fights, there are so there th- are certainly social class within animals. So I think the answer to that is let's use your wolf example. So that would be like a strong wolf who's not the alpha wolf wanting to be the alpha wolf. Yeah. So the instinct to be on top. Is still for a concrete thing, and then when he is the alpha wolf and has everything else, he still doesn't have a existential burning desire for something greater. How do you know? Well, then, then, then this is then this is a, a silly conversation. Then we can't know.
0: Well, this is my point. That if we if we anchor well, well this is the, the, the way that
2: we can know is that we don't see wolves who have all of their needs being met. Um, um, Like, or maybe because we haven't talked about scandal.
0: Have you, have we ever seen in, say, a zoo where an animal is having all of their needs met and yet is despondent?
2: We don't, that we
1: can't know. I think maybe more.
2: Well, then it's need for like being in it in its natural environment is not being met.
1: At the level of action, we would say that once this is, you see this in um, monkey colonies, that the goal is to become that kind of head position and then they don't. they eat. They um, they get fat and they get killed. Like once they get to that spot, they're not after anything else. You can't know their intentions around it. That's AJ, your point. But by actions, you would say their goal was to get to that one spot and then they're satisfied. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying, Graham.
0: But uh, right? I would say that's not like take the wolf for example. He doesn't just get to the top and. I mean, they don't always just stop. His goal is to have more kids to pursue these things, and I think it it takes an awful an awful leap to say that our desires are not necessarily for concrete goods. The desire to sit in first class is the desire for a comfort level. The desire to see the other man reduced is a desire for, for like less competition for being the being envied and respected, which is a power and respect thing. Like these are all concrete. Animals
2: don't have this thing where they, completely end up destroying... Let's say, for example, if you're looking at a Shakespeare tragedy, they don't have this thing where they end up completely destroying the family because of their ego. That's what he's getting at. So, like, King Lear destroys his entire... Everything that he's built his entire life on because of his inability to let go. Like, you don't have that same... That sort of same ego-driving desire in the animal kingdom as you do in the human kingdom. You don't have, like... um Um, an entire community wiped out because the vanity of the alpha wolf. Don't you?
0: The vanity of a wolf? Have you ever had, have you ever heard of like an alpha that, that is overly aggressive and destroys all the other males in his troop and thus reduces the group?
2: But that would be an, an, again, that's a, that's an instinct um, driven that, by ego no no that's an instinct driven, that's that's just an instinct so all of us there was just not it was an accident accident of nature that he did not have wolves that were strong enough to stand up to him
0: the the word instinct is a word that means we have no idea how X or y works that's what instinct means is that we have no idea how it functions in nature not Lewis yeah. yeah the word instinct is a word for we know not what which is frustrating so that is that is a that's a side thing right that is my that is actually my lesser beef my greater beef is is that if it is true that this inordinate desire is what mm-hmm. defines us as humans, then the more content I become, which is a call in scripture, mm-hmm. and also one of the aspirations of most sages, mm-hmm. the less human no, no, I become. No, no, no you're mistaking in there. Yeah.
2: The, the more content you become, the more you are fulfilling what you were supposed to be doing. Because you are fulfilled by God. That's right. The desire so, is met in God. Yes. The That's, desire is yeah. made, so the, the, the desire that seeks fulfillment is not just supposed to always be be pulsing out and never satisfied. It's supposed to find a satisfaction in the correct thing. Um,
0: so it is desire for would you say a concrete good? Is God in so far as
2: God is concrete, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but um, then, then fine. Then we can recast it by saying that the difference between man and the beast is that our desires are for. The spiritual reality of God and the beastly desires are for the concrete realities of, Stuff. of food and good. Yep. Um, uh, but I, 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 I think with. I think the burden of proof is on you to 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 show that wars of vanity and the absolute destruction of of, of animal civilizations is as prevalent in the animal kingdom as it is in the human in the human mm-hmm. realm.
0: My my point is that this this argument depends an awful lot on. On that, th- like understanding the psychoses or the the psyche of animals, but I'm I'm f- I'm still struggling with the, with the, if I am becoming more content, I am becoming less human. No, no, the, you're that's it's the desires being fulfilled is is I think what he is saying. But but contentment isn't always brought about by the fulfillment of desires. It's often the reduction or abandonment of desires. Let's see if you if you look at sages that are non-Christian. Right, say say Buddhists, for example. Hmm. The the point is not to have all my desires fulfilled. That's not the point. The point is to stop desiring. Would you say that they are making themselves less human in doing so? Uh,
1: I think the goal again. This is like a Stoic epitheia. I do think that is less human to reduce desire. I think a Christian mystic is not denying. Um, they're not they're not missing out on something by becoming that mystic, by becoming a hermit, by becoming whatever they're having a truer. Closer experience to God Um, by
0: focusing their desires on one object,
1: on God. Yeah, which I would not. Who I would not call concrete. Um, Yeah. So again, I don't think it's a denial of desire to turn away from material things. I don't know if Gerard gets to that point, turning away from material things for spiritual things.
2: He's he's saying that um, um, that by um, that the material world. Produces a massive stumbling block because we are beings that have that desire. Oh, if you want to change it to um, human beings are things that love. Like uh, that, I think that would That's be an the, interchangeable thing. Is right. that we're not thinking things, but things that love. Um, going back to sort of like a Jamie Smith, you are what you love. Um, that the heart, that uh, the the core of the human person is that it has this it has this this desire for fulfillment. Um, I'm. And, I'm all for that being true. And we, and the, the basis of human violence is that we locate the fulfillment in trying to copy um, what we think is the fulfillment in others around us. Um, and when, uh, and then when that um, rivalry takes place between two people, um, it is always going to build up, and then builds up into something that always explodes into something. Uh, quite violent. The world he uses for that is scandal, simply because he's translating um, "scandalon" in Greek, and um, ultimately he's going to make his point that like uh, this is where the term sca- this is where scapegoats come from. I wasn't. Pl- we're not going to talk about that because I haven't read that chapter yet, and I'm still not familiar with that point. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, uh, Aj, I, I guess I just don't see how you think that human beings are, are creatures that love and are trying to find its fulfillment in something outside of themselves is not differenti- differentiating us from animals. I, there are animals that love.
0: Penguins. Mate for life. There are, there are many animals that when they lose their mate, they become depressed and despondent and sometimes die with the loss of a mate. Like, that is a thing in nature. When, when some animals in zoos... I mean, like, I am, I am perfectly comfortable... With the argument saying, as a side note, saying like desire is part of the human experience, and it's not. And what is the perfection of the human is not necessarily abandonment of desire, but focusing of that desire from the physical thing to the spiritual. That sounds reasonable to me. I can I can jump on board with that. I still am a little uncomfortable with saying that people who are abandoning their their physical desires and not necessarily focusing on the heavenly, i.e., Buddhists, are making themselves subhuman. I'd yeah, have to think about sorry, that a little that's more. that's
1: not, again, I'm not, that's not the point I'm making. The point is that even that person is focused on, uh,
0: a, a higher, uh, a, a better spiritual thing than the physical, but kind of, but pure, pure Buddhism is not necessarily that their point is to avoid suffering. And the way you avoid suffering is by abandoning desire. Like that's the point sure. is to avoid suffering. Yeah. Right. And I would, which I, is a kind of rejection, still a rejection of the world or material
1: things. Again, um, there's more similarity here between a buddhist and a christian mystic
0: than sure yeah. which is why i'm still kind of comfortable with it what right. i am uncomfortable with is is anchoring the differentiation between man and beast in desire desire i i am uncomfortable with that because we don't fully understand the desires of animals and and our de- desires like if i if i desire things less does that make me less no. human
2: no you so that jump that you're making is not so it's not that you. So um, he would say that desiring things less is the wrong move. I mean, he's saying it's an impossible move, that the, that the, the Buddhist um, uh, project is an impossible one to create to be a person who desires nothing. Um, actually, I think he would say that the the person who desires who who is seeking after desiring nothing um, is moving towards a state of oblivion, which is not. Um, which is not how the human person was meant to exist. That the, the, the desire is supposed to be in becoming, uh, desiring to be the image of the Father. Um, uh, is, that's the Christian move on this, and that's, and so that's the, the, when, when Christ comes and, uh, and, and sort of says, uh, here is the relationship that man ought to have with his desires. It is to be the image of God the Father, um, um, so I think you. so Renee Girard probably would say that the the, pro, the the Buddhist project of trying to have no desire is a desire is a is an attempt to remove humanity from so, yourself.
0: So I don't necessarily I was think about that, I don't necessarily disagree that that if I if I desire nothing in this world, if I have no ambition, no anchor, mm-hmm. nothing I want, then really maybe I am not like I'm not part of the part of the mix. Like I'm not part of the party, right? But I, but that still doesn't like equating.
1: You're saying the humanity part of it is the problem.
0: Yeah, equating our desire with our humanity means that, and, and and this is true. I I typically tend to desire things just less. Like I'm content. I don't need stuff. I don't like if if break stuff I love. It's usually an okay thing. Like I'll get over it. And I there's just I don't have a whole ton of personal ambition for cash or success or power or any of those things i am generally pretty contented and uh, some of that is anchored in christ but does that mean that i am abandoning my humanity that is a hard pill to swallow boys does he have a a
1: more technical definition of desire is that the problem we're having here Mm.
2: um let me so let me look at so the the right let's look at the right relationship um so maybe this is will be helpful
1: I did not expect a 40-minute discussion on animal psychology. That was a surprise to me today. Um, no, I'm sorry. No, this is fun. I'll pull up when some, Jesus when I'll declares some studies, that he does not
2: abolish the law but fulfills it, he artistic, articulates a logical consequence of his teaching. The goal of the law is peace among humankind. Jesus never scorns the law, even when it takes forms of the prohibitions. Unlike modern thinkers, he knows quite well that to avoid conflicts, it is necessary to begin with prohibitions. Um The commandment to imitate Jesus does not appear suddenly in a world exempt from imitation. Rather, it is addressed to everyone that mimetic rivalry has affected. Non-Christians imagine that to be converted, they must renounce an autonomy that all people possess naturally, a freedom and independence that Jesus would like to take away from them. In reality... Once we imitate Jesus, we discover that our aspiration to autonomy has always made us bow down before individuals who may not be worse than we are, but who are nonetheless bad models, because we cannot imitate them without falling with them into the trap of rivalries in which we are ensnared ensnared more and more. We feel that we are at the point of attaining autonomy as we imitate our models of power and prestige." This autonomy, however, is really nothing but a reflection of the illusions projected by our admiration for them. The more this admiration mimetically intensifies, the less aware it is of its own mimetic nature. The more proud and egotistic that we are, the more enslaved we, we become to our mimetic models. So, I, okay, I think I've got it. So, there is the, pro- the problem is that human beings have desire, and that desire, when it's put into the wrong object, we first love are objects of desire man i really want to be like lebron james because he's so cool yeah and then um the more that we have a desire for something outside ourselves eventually that desire um turns into hatred and wanting to sort of like master it remember that do you remember in um, in that uh the the josh gibbs book what was it, was it? The, the first one
1: yeah the something or um
2: where he asked his students what they want for Christmas. How to be unlucky. And then that student goes from like, I want to have an autographed jersey of LeBron James. I want to hang out with LeBron James. I want to have LeBron James in like a... I
1: want to be LeBron James. I want James. to be LeBron I want James. I to kill LeBron. Yeah. That, it, and it ends, of, yeah. And
2: so that sort of illustrates his point is that, okay, so here's the human problem, is that we are creatures that desire, and when we put our desire into something outside of ourselves, we first love it, and then we eventually hate it. There are two ways to dist- to beat that problem. One is the Buddhist way, which is try to eliminate desire, and by so doing, you are also going to gut your humanity, I think would be Rene Girard's argument. Or the other thing is to imitate—if you're going to have a desire to imitate, then imitate the right thing, which is to try to imitate God. Try to be the image of God. Have your mimetic desire to be uh, the things of of God. This is what Christ does when he's, when he's alive, and— on on or, you know so, um, and this is getting to sort of the point I wanted to get to this podcast. I don't even know how much time we were into it. Okay, um, but uh, um, so that um, um, for Gerard, Jesus then is the is the perfect image of God because his mimetic desire is on things of the Father, um, and that is the thing that is supposed to drive human beings. And so instead of removing the software desire because the software is causing problem it, it's now like have the software run in the in its sort of proper usage um, um does that make sense
0: yeah I, and i don't necessarily disagree with it i'm left with a couple of questions number one what do you mean by desiring things of the father and number two uh i i think my biggest beef here i i don't disagree that desire is an integral part of the human experience don't disagree with that. I also don't necessarily disagree that removing desire altogether would make you something other than human. I probably agree there as well. My biggest beef is when you say that is what differentiates us with the animals. That's what makes us human. I don't think that's true. What is it then? Uh, it's Uh For most of classicism, it's it's reason. Well, almost every classical philosopher says the thing that sets us apart from the animals is reason. I, I think it might be um, the Imago Dei. I think it might be like there are there are a lot of things that separate us from the animals, and I think desire is one of the least of these. Mm-hmm. And that to, de- to, to deny my desire is perhaps to make me something other than human, but not necessarily to make me more animal. And there are animals that certainly have desire. Like this is, sure. it's frustrating to me. Like sure. animals that have every single need met and yet are unhappy. Yeah, I and Graham
1: started the his talk with this of um that Mortimer Adler's *On the opening to the great books of the Western world, um, puts the what makes human as animal plus angel, it's body plus spirit. The question of what that spirit is can incorporate reason, but would also yeah. incorporate some kind of um, emotion. Um, th- there's more to it, but um, reason can be a part of that. But it's body plus spirit. Yeah,
0: so I agree with pretty much everything, yeah. except that it's where our humanity is anchored. Um, and again, my last question is, What do you mean by desiring things of the Spirit? Is that simply relationship with God, or is that qualities of God that exist?
2: Um, It is not due to inflated self-love that he asks... Oh, sorry. If Jesus never speaks in terms of prohibition and always in terms of models and imitation, it is because he draws out the full consequence of the lesson offered by the Tenth Commandment. It is not due to inflated self-love that he asks us to imitate him. It is to turn us away from mimetic rivalries. Um... Where is it What is the basis of imitating Jesus? It cannot be his ways of being or his personal habits. Imitation is never about that in the Gospels. Neither does Jesus propose an ascetic rule of life in the sense of a Thomas a Kempis and his celebrated imitation of Christ, as admirable as that work may be. Great book.. Yeah. What Jesus invites us to imitate is his own desire, the spirit that directs him towards the goal on which his intention is fixed, to resemble God the Father as much as possible. The invitation to imitate the desire of Jesus may seem paradoxical, for Jesus does not claim to possess a desire proper, a desire of his very own, quote-unquote. Contrary to what we ourselves claim, he does not claim to be himself. He does not flatter himself that he obeys only his own desire. His goal is to become the perfect image of God. Therefore, he commits all his powers to imitating his Father. In inviting us to imitate him, he invites us to imitate his own imitation, um so it is to have the desires that we have so if the desires that we have radiate from out of us and when we fix them on lesser things um the goods of our neighbors or the lives of our neighbors or these lesser idols when we worship these other things um, we begin to hate those things and so Uh, What we are supposed to fix and worship and idolize is God and then try to imitate God. So,
0: um, yeah, try to imitate Jesus in his desire for God.
2: Yes, we try to imitate. Yeah. So we, if we're going to copy a person, if we're going to, if we're going to locate our mimetic rivalry in somebody, it is not going to be a rivalry when we imitate Christ, um, because um, Christ is not going to try to one-up us. It is. is already upped. He, yeah, it's the so that the Good. imitation Good. that we have of him is is actually the the way that human beings are supposed to sort of utilize this capacity of desire. So
0: my my question still hasn't been answered: If Jesus dest- desires to be like God, mm-hmm. be the Godhead, how in the world do we do that? I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omnipresent. Pretty I don't know all. Holy, yeah. isn't that the okay? So that that that's kind of what I was driving so it, for. It does that, come so, down
2: to to it's you know to the. To um, to want the things you know to love the things that God loves. So it, it it again comes down to that like changing of the affections, to set your minds on things above these these kinds of things. It's it's. Um, but that, that's what I, I think. What I'm trying to drive at is that
0: there's I think there's a lot of Christians, and this included me when I was young, that are told like desire to be like God, and I was like, how in the flipping world do I do that? Like I can't. There, but there are. There are answers to that. There are qualities that God has that we see tangibly in Scripture. He's self-sacrificing. He is charitable. He is just. He is constant. He is kind. He is... There are some things that, about God that we probably shouldn't imitate, and you, your book actually touched on it. Self-love. He, God does love himself, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It isn't an inordinate self-love, because every ounce of love he can give to himself is an appropriate ounce of love. Mm-hmm. He is the greatest thing in the universe. So Jesus Christ does love himself. We should not imitate that, only in that we should also love God too. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's not that he he wants us to change our desire, not necessarily to get us out, of, only to get us out of these rivalries. Your book said it wasn't out of inordinate self-love, but it is out of inordinate self-love. He wants us to love the greatest thing. And so it's,
2: yes, it's... Uh, to, this is probably where Rene Girard is not so orthodox. Um, um, he is saying that... um. Christ is telling us not to love him as himself, but to love him because he's trying to imitate God. Yeah, but he's also telling us to love him as himself, as
0: far as I know. Follow me, and then there's but follow. The bride. Follow is different. But you have so the follow
2: bride. is follow is is like follow is copy me in what I'm doing, and what I'm doing is the will of my father. No, that instead of, that, instead of actions, my own, in my own. That thing. sounds
0: like a leap, but there are also passages like you have the bridegroom with you, right? You won't always have the bridegroom with you. When he talks about how, what's her name? The girl was sitting there at dinner, and her wife wanted her to, or her not her wife, but her sister wanted her to help with the food, and he's like, "Look, Mary, she shows the better part. Right. She's sitting with me because mm-hmm. I'm here, right? She she likes me." And then, I don't know. I. What's your pushback on this one? You're saying that. He he said, and I. this is as close a quote as I can get, it is not from inordinate self-love that Christ desires us to follow him, but out of a—to to prevent us from these competitive these mimetic one-upmanship. It is not themship. due
2: to inflated self-love that there he is. asks us to imitate him. It is to turn us away from mimetic rivalries. It's both. It, yes, it is from self-love. Um, inflated
0: self-love. He says inflated, yeah. Well,
2: yeah, well it's not inflated. Well,
0: it is inflated to the absolute full. It cannot inflate further, I think would be the right— answer to that in, in the actual Godhead, maybe in Jesus, because he is submitted to the God, God, the father, it's a little bit different, but, um, that's my, that's my pushback, I guess.
1: Sure. I do find it interesting. Also, it, it almost becomes more of a language of loyalty of, um, you quoted this a while ago, but it's, again, it's not whether you will serve, it's who you will serve. And so it's not what you will desire, but who, or it's not whether you will desire, but what you desire. Yeah.
2: AJ, do animals worship? He's about to say yes. Ah!
0: Maybe. Oh, my gosh. AJ. That <laughs> depends on your definition of worship. So you're
2: going to give us, a, but you can't just give us an, an, uh, an argument out of, <laughs> out of ignorance. We can't know.
0: No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it depends on your definition of worship. Do certain dogs love certain toys? No,
2: I'm not love. Worship. What do you mean by worship? Uh, I think is what he's mean is it, what Rene Girard is getting at is that um, worship and idolatry are the same thing. Idolatry is so worship is, is the act of de- of this mimetic desire, um, and when you uh, when it is on the right thing of God, it is appropriate, and when it is on the wrong thing, it is an idolatry that eventually turns to hatred. So my que- so my point is that the dog will never love the ball so much that the dog hates the ball, but human beings will love something so much they will eventually hate that thing. They will worship something so much that they eventually hate the thing. That's 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 the key difference that Rene Girard gets at when he's talking about this desire.
0: So, what makes me human is eventually the hatred?
2: No, not what, what differentiates you from the animal is that your worship has such capacity for glory and such depra- capacity for depravity that is not available to animals.
0: I could say the same thing about my capacity for reason.
2: Um, this is going out on a limb. It would not surprise me if Rene Girard said that the decoupling of reason and desire is a move that we shouldn't have made when we were talking about the, the the sort of the the psychology of the person. So again,
0: I don't I don't have a problem saying that humans have a different maybe a different capacity for desire and that desire is a human thing and to and to make myself desire less is to perhaps decouple myself from humanity. I'm just saying that. I'm not sure that's the thing that makes us human. Um,
2: when I, I call beef. I think in the ancient world, when they talked about reason as a differentiation between man and beast, we as modern people think logic. And what they actually mean is this, um, this consciousness desire sort of hybrid mm. that they're talking about.
1: Or even with the, we talked about the great chain of being back with E.F. Schumacher, the difference between animal and human is animals have a consciousness. So they are aware, they can desire, they can act on instinct, but humans have a self-consciousness. They can reflect on that consciousness. To say we have no study about that is not the same as to say this is a theory of what is animal, mm-hmm. what is material versus what is spiritual. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, That's what, he is at least riffing on that. That's a medieval concept, but... Um, No, 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 Augustine even talked about it. So it goes back longer than that. Um, Again, these are like theories of the essence of animal. At some level, there is no, you cannot
0: prove that. Mm -hmm. Is that because we can't talk to the animal. So from what I, let's see, there's a Aristotle idea that the man's soul is made up of three basic soul chunks, the vegetable soul, which is growth, and that's available to all growing things, Mm -hmm. right? So plants grow but they don't have the sensitive soul. And the sensitive soul is, let's see if I can find it here. Um, there are, there's like memory, estimation, imagination, fantasy, common sense, touch, smell, sight, sound, taste. Like they they can sense, sense things, right? A, a plant can't necessarily sense that you're cutting its leaves off and it can't remember things and imagine things, but animals can. And then the rational soul is, is it, is human. And that includes a kindly inclining back to God, which is the, this desire that you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is the source of moral truths, right? Intellectus. Mm-hmm. And then it's both intellectus and ratio. So according to Aristotle, this is the thing that is available only to humans. So the inclining back to God, which is your desire, source of moral truth, intellectus, and ratio. So reason is a piece of it. Um, intellectus, for those of, those of you who haven't listened to our early episodes, it's the simple grasp of an, an intelligible truth, like pondering over something that is knowable and sort of just. So maybe I'm overstating
2: it. it by saying that Girard is saying that desire is the sole thing that differentiates, differentiates us from the animals. But to eliminate, but to not talk about mimetic rivalry as something that is differentiating us from the animals is not to fully understand what we mean when we say reason, I guess. Like that this is still a part of what differentiates us from the animals. Oh, we yeah. don't have. We don't have this rivalry to the point of destruction scandal that in the animal kingdom, as you do everywhere in, in human life.
1: And Gerard is saying we can pick where that um, uh, uh, loyalty goes, where that where we choose to mimic, yes. correct? So Whereas that, the that cow is,
2: cannot change his desire for the grass. The, is, human, the human person can say man, I really admire Magby and everything that Magby does, I, you know, I really idolize him. And then at some point, you change it to something else. Sure. Not because your desire changed. You still desire, but the lo- locus of your desire changes, and that can change throughout your life. You can either do it consciously or it can be done sort of to you subconsciously.
1: But that's reason, that's reason there that would say, I can, choose, I can go from a lesser good to a greater good, mm-hmm, correct? Mm-hmm. So,
2: and, then, and that what people are doing when they accept are, Christ— yes. Choosing a higher good. Is that they are choosing the higher good and it would be wrong to say that the Christian life is one of asceticism where we are trying to strip desire away. It's not that we, we do not hate the world in that sense, where we try to eliminate desire. But um well, seek ye first the kingdom of yeah. God and and all these things are added to you. So the joy the great joy of the sensual world comes to you insofar as you locate your desire in the right place. Yeah. And the way to do that is by um, imitating Christ. Well, now, we're called
0: to contentment. I mean, but I think contentment is perhaps not necessarily the removal of desire, desire, but the refocusing of the human. But contentment desire comes on the, when
2: the desire has landed in its home. Like they, I, that's my, what I'm my saying. My heart it's is like, restless till it finds its rest in you. The, the Augustine quote.
0: Yeah, you should be desiring things spiritual mm-hmm. and not desiring the physical. And so, like that may, might feel like a removal because
2: you're not desiring physical. Yeah. But. Um, now. What I wanted to do, the the thing that I wanted to sort of get to with this podcast is use this as an example. So, um, of an interpretation of scripture that isn't sort of regular. So, many, many podcasts ago, we talked about that um, um, there are four ways of reading scripture there's Uh the literal, there's the allegorical, there's the anagogical, and there's the moral. So, just real quick, if you're doing the Exodus story, the literal would be God parted the waters and saved the Israelites. The allegorical would be, um... Christ will... Christ, no, no, yeah. Christ will sort of part the waters, and... Christ will save us from the destruction of our enemies, of sin and death, nipping at our heels, and we will do it through miracle. Sure. Allegorical. Moral, you should be like Moses. He trusted God, and look where it got him. Um, And then anagogical, the end of the world... Um, God will one day uh, bring all into the promised land of sure. eternity with him. So there's the four ways. What René Girard is doing, I was thinking about this. I was like, is he doing—so he's obviously using Scripture to talk about this sort of psychological reality of human desire. And he is convinced that the Bible is tr- is telling us a truth about the human person by talk- by looking at the commandments and by looking at the, the person of Christ. Is he doing—is his reading of the New New Testament any of those four ways, or is he doing a fifth new thing, a psychological reading of Scripture? Hmm. Is he doing like a Jungian psychology? um, Or—
1: Isn't it a form of allegory?
2: That that was my—that was the only thing that I could come close to, is that it is a form—that allegory is doing that, that it's a form of allegory.
1: If, yeah, the other grouping of those four readings is the— Again, you said literal for the first, and then spiritual is the other mm-hmm. three. So, it, at a minimum, it falls in that or a, a spiritual mm-hmm. reading. Um, is it moral though? Is it is his reading telling us how to then live our lives? Would there is the part of that. Other way to take it,
2: yeah. Um, uh, he maybe he's conflating allegorical and moral together.
1: They all because they all go together.
2: Um, and so then this led me down this path of thinking of. So, so the, the practice of psychology is... I'm, I'm just wondering if, if... So if psychology in the 19th century, um, sort of psychoanalyzing a person to try to sort of think about their psyche to cure the ills of their soul. This was sort of what, what Freud and Jung were doing. They saw people in despair and they were trying to figure out how to help them. It was a medicine. I wonder if theology... uh used in the way that Gerard is using it met that that function in the Middle Ages oh. of psychology and then once we stopped believing in the Bible we still needed soul work and then psychology sort of came in as like a uh, as a backfill for that so, right. that's then, maybe a whole other podcast but modern but it just made me think like is modern psychoanaly modern psychoanalysis pastoral care without christian doctrine and or or theological um, an attempt to, to give people frameworks for their life without having without believing in a doctrine
0: pastoral meaning that of a pastor yes. not that Shepherding, of
2: a, not of a sheep yeah
0: not of like a small rural town that yes. kind of pastoral no
2: no thing. i mean pastoral care like like a priest so yeah. um so in the middle ages if you had melancholy if you were depressed and you went to the priest and you were talking about your melancholy. Well, he would probably bleed you. That's a whole other conversation. But there was a sense that the right belief in doctrine was medicine to the soul. Yeah. Um, this is I. I was looking for the reference in this. I couldn't find it. And that part of being a doctor of philosophy was that you were a soul doctor. And when someone came to you with a spiritual ailment, you had medicine for that. And it was right. It was right understanding of doctrine. Right. Which sounds so foreign to us. But nowadays, if you have a, a soul problem, we don't call it a soul problem, we call it a psycho you know we have to call it a psychological, psychological. problem, right. but psyche and soul, same right. thing, um, or at least the same word. And now we have people who are trained to try to give medicine to that problem with, I don't know, daily affirmations or some kind of some kind of medicine. And um, I'm just wondering if. What we call psychology, if some if we could transport someone from the Middle Ages, they would say, "Oh, that person is just doing theology, except their theology doesn't have God in it or the Bible or I don't know." Do, do you ever know saying maybe yeah, I no, as say someone that I who maybe as someone who's gone through like, um, you've done pastoral counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And do they ever talk about this in pastoral counseling classes? Yeah, that, all, like, all the time. We as Christian pastoral counselors are believe that the body, thus that the human person is one thing. And a non-Christian pastoral counselor believes that the body, the human person, is something else. And um, in those differences, there's, there's actually like, there's, there's um, professional conflict. Uh, like, like if you're you you a, a psychoanalysis who believes that the world is just material versus per- someone who believes the, eter- the soul is eternal, you're going to have different medicine for the ailments of the heart.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to look. My um, my classwork is through the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, which is through Westminster, um, is a university out of I think Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the classes has us reading um, Irvin Yalom, um, a psycho. Is he a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst? I'm trying to look up, but he wrote um, "Loves exec- Loves Executioner." Um, mm-hmm which is a, and I'm, I was trying to look it up, but um, ap- apologies, I'll have to bring it another time. He, he opens the book with his like four truths that it's his goal to teach all of his clients. And I forget what they are, but one of them is like, everything is meaningless. Like all the yeah, events yeah. of life are meaningless. You will die one day. Be like, kind.
0: <laughs> watch out for witches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Learn Odin's the list. runes. Yeah. <laughs> I like Odin's list. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but so to read that, you're like, you know, I don't agree with these things, but you still have to deal with the fact he has, great results. Mm-hmm. And that's the point of the book is to walk through like, actually sometimes people need to realize they're attaching too much significance to minor events that don't actually mean anything. Um,
2: so I think this is enough. This is its own fascinating be, podcast. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a episode. separate, it'll
1: have to be a different episode, but, um, but yes, it's a, it's a huge, and even within Christian counseling, there's, there's this, um, the founder of it is it Jay Abrams, I think is the guy's name. Um, he rejected um, secular, secular, Research, he would not allow it to be brought into the counseling setting, and so that's kind of a long-standing. I mean, it's only like forty years old this field, but um, uh, of Christian counseling, which is its own conversation. But the question of what to do with things that aren't in the
2: Bible. The reason I bring this up is that people would look at Rene Girard, and he's often credited as, oh, he's doing, he's talking about human psychology, and he's using the story of Christianity as like a example. Of human psychology, mm-hmm. and I think Rene Girard would come at it from the other way around. He says, "The doctrine of, Christ- the, the, the doctrine of, of scripture reveals us to ourselves." Right. Um, and um, anyway, so um, I think so. Then yes, is is this is it a fifth reading to say that he's psychoanalyzing the Bible or? Is he doing like an, an allegorical or a moral reading or conflating or something? I don't know. That's a whole other yeah. Yeah. thing. Anyway. That's good.
0: Um, hey, sorry I made such a big stink about animals today, you guys. Oh, That's all right.
2: They, no, I think, it de- you were, I think your instinct heh, was right in that <laughs> it um, was at the heart of the issue. Yes.
1: And it, it matters whether he's right or not. Yeah.
2: Right in that yeah. part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, that thing that we just went through is the groundwork that he lays for— why Christ was killed and why the crowd turned on him so fast. And he has this whole theory about scapegoats, which maybe we can get to if I yeah. think it's interesting. i don't, It's been a long time Love since goats. I read that part.
0: <laughs> okay, this has been classical stuff you should know. You should check out our Patreon if you haven't already. We are, it's a way to throw us some, some support uh, if you pay for the five bucks. You get all of our backfill episodes, all kinds of episodes that don't have any commercials. If we ever do commercials, <laughs> and you've got you get all of our other talks and extra things uh, at the ten dollar level. You get background stuff, like you get to listen to all of our in between banter, which has been centering a lot around the market lately. Yeah. So if you're we interested, to go back in, to
1: classics at some point. That is like the whole shtick. If right?
0: you're interested, well, I think we should just talk about whatever we want to talk about oh, in the in between. Okay, like deal. that's that's my favorite stuff. So it's been it's been market centered. So if you're interested in the market, come check it out. And if you pay the 20 bucks, you can help kind of decide where the podcast is headed. Uh, AMA is at ten dollar level, right? Ten dollars. Yes. So at ten dollars, we also do a monthly AMA and you can send us questions and we will answer your questions. Uh, I think, yeah, we'll probably wait until next week to do one because we we've only got one question in the AMA bucket, and we're just gonna let them let them fill up a little bit before we kind of tackle one. So cool. if you're waiting for that and you're a you're a backer, just just wait, just wait a week. And then you can check us out on Twitter at Stuff. You can see our website at www.classicalstuff.net, and you can email us at theguys@classicalstuff.net. At and I think that's it. So, boys, it's been it's been it's been real. It's been good. We did right. it. Right. We bye will bye, see bye, you, bye, listeners, bye. next time. Bye. Ciao.